you play a real part in that, and I hope you know that this morning. Uh, and this morning, uh, we're going to be looking at the last chapter in John's Gospel. We're going to take a break in the Zechariah series. Uh, and as we begin to look at that text, I want to offer a brief word of orientation to us. Uh, this past fall at RUF, we studied the Gospel of John, and we really tried to consider together what it means that God intends to come and dwell among us, that God actually moves toward us in order to bring us life. You see, we believe as Christians that the goal of each one of our lives is ever-deepening union with God in and through Jesus Christ. That is what you're made for. That's what it means to glorify God and enjoy Him, is to experience that kind of union and communion with God in and through Jesus Christ. And He comes to bring that life to you. That is where life is found. And the reason we anchored ourselves in John's gospel, though, is because that theme of life with Christ permeates the entirety of it. I mean, think about this. In John 1, speaking of Christ... John writes, in him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. And in John 3, the famous verse, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And in John 10, Jesus is talking, and he says that he has come to bring life, abundant life. And in John 11 and John 14, Jesus says that he himself is the life. And in John 20, in case you missed it, you get John's thesis statement. He says, everything that I've written is that you may believe, and by believing you might have life, everlasting life in his name. So that's what the Gospel of John is about, really. And throughout all of this, you see all these wonderful pictures of who God is in Jesus Christ, how Jesus moves toward us in so many different ways to bring us life. And this morning, I want us to see Christ as the restorer. The one who time and again, despite our failures, restores us back to life with him. As we look at this last chapter, I want to invite you to do something that we don't really like to do. And that's to consider your own failures, past or present. Where in your life have you experienced acute failure or do you feel like an acute failure? And even more though, I want you to observe in this text how Jesus meets you in your failure with the gift of his faithfulness, offered to you by grace. With that in mind, please stand for the reading of God's word. It's a bit of a lengthy text, but please give your attention to this beautiful and true account in John 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. 
When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. Now Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper, and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. This is God's word. It's true and it's good. It's given to us because he loves us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for revealing yourself to us through your word. God, we pray this morning that you would take a text that to many of us is familiar and that you would make it appropriately strange, that we might be startled by it. We pray that you would soften our hearts and that you would encounter us with your grace in the ways that we need to hear from you this morning. We pray through Christ. Amen. You may be seated. So just to give you a little bit of background of my story, when I was in college, uh, I went to Auburn University, and uh, I had grown up in a Christian home and had lived a, a pretty upright life. But most of, despite my great upbringing, despite being raised in the church, most of my moral action in the world was based on who I was around and who I wanted to like me. And so going off to college, all of a sudden, there was a lot of different groups that I was trying to please, and they were all very different from one another. You can imagine there was one group that was actually really upright and godly and wanted to lead me in the right direction, and I would act a certain way with them. And there was another group that was the polar opposite, uh, off, off, the, off the rails a bit and wild, and I would act a totally different way with them. And for a couple of years in college, I lived this kind of double life, back and forth, and it was absolutely destructive and it was agonizing. And I remember over those years just accruing amounts of failure within my life and wanting to hide so much of my life from people that I knew really loved me and cared for me and wondering, what if they really knew how I was actually living? Would they still want to be my friend? And I remember around that time of my second year of college, there was a campus minister with a ministry at Auburn that began to like call me and ask me to go to lunch, and he kind of freaked me out. I was like, what does this guy want from me? Why is he doing this? Now I'm that guy doing that to all kinds of people. 
But I remember he, he would take me to lunch and ask me these questions, how I was doing, he wanted to know, and I would give him the answers I thought he wanted to hear again and again and again because I didn't want to actually tell him what was going on in my life. And then one day he finally timed it perfectly. And I remember I had had a horrible weekend. And there I sat across the table from him eating some Subway sandwiches or something. And he asked me how I was doing. And just instinctively I said, pretty terrible. And then I thought, oh my goodness, why did I say that? And then he said, well, tell me about that. And then all of a sudden I just start telling him everything. I just lay it all on the table. And I remember the helpless feeling of doing that and wondering, well, I wonder if he's still going to want to meet with me. I wonder what he's going to do now. And I remember the deep shock that I felt when his posture didn't change, when he even moved closer to me and he stayed at the table and he said, thank you for finally being honest with me. Now we can finally have a real conversation. Let me tell you about what the gospel actually is because it's in this place that Jesus actually wants to meet you. And that was one of the first times in my life that this intellectual truth about what the gospel is and who Jesus is and what his posture is toward me as a sinner, as a failure, actually took a deeper root in my heart and I experienced it. And I don't know what that's been like for you if you've experienced that before in your own life, if you've experienced that regularly, I hope you do. But what I want to ask you this morning is where are those places in your life? What are the places where you feel like a failure? What are the places that you're desperate to hide from other people and that you think, oh, I, don't, I think this area is kind of off limits from Jesus or from these other people. They can't really know about this. Where do you feel like that? Of course, you know, failure can have so many different expressions, and it's helpful to know this. You can have relational failure where we let someone down, we fail to meet someone's expectations, we hurt someone else either accidentally or on purpose. We have vocational failure all the time as a student or in your job or as a parent. As you're trying to raise your kids, you can fail. And even more, we have moral failure, falling into the same temptation and sin pattern again and again and again and feeling utterly helpless and wondering, how in the world do I break out of this? And wondering, can I even let someone know about this? Whatever it may be, some combination of those, I want you to consider where you most experience failure in that pain. And as you consider it, the more important question, how do you think Jesus relates to you in that place? If Jesus were to encounter you in the moment of your failure, what would he say to you? What would his posture be toward you? You see, one of the claims of the Bible is that human beings have shared in the ultimate failure. That's what the Bible calls sin. Turning from and rebelling against God. And because of our original sin, failure in every capacity not only pervades our lives, but also begins to to kind of create a new identity for us, we, we begin to see ourselves as our worst failure, to see ourselves fundamentally through the lens of our, our greatest wrongdoing. And yet the Bible also claims that our, despite our failure, God still moves toward us again and again and meets us with his own faithfulness. And that's why one aspect of the invitation of the gospel to be united to Jesus is the invitation to have your identity so wrapped up in Jesus that his faithfulness defines you and not your failure. To have your identity so wrapped up in that of Christ that it is his faithfulness and not your failure that defines you. In union with Jesus, your status as a child of God is just as secure as his. Can you believe that? 
That's what it means to be adopted as a son or daughter of God. And if that's true, Christians should have the most unique posture toward failure of anyone in the world because we know that our identity is not on the line with every potential failure because even when we fail, even when we are at rock bottom, we stand on the rock-solid foundation of the righteousness and faithfulness of Christ. And friends, it was that kind of life-changing experience that Peter had in the text we just read. You see, earlier in John's gospel, Peter had promised Jesus that he would be faithful to the end. He said, even if everyone else fails you, not me, I'm going to stay with you even to death. And yet, just a short time later, Peter eats his words. He fails his friend, publicly denying him three times. And in Luke's account of the failure, we're actually told that Jesus looked at Peter, that their eyes met as Peter denied Jesus the third time. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, it's difficult to envision a more painful failure than this. It's relational, vocational, and moral, all wrapped up in one. And it's likely that Peter did what we all do when we fail. He probably played it again and again in his mind, hour after hour after hour. What does Jesus think of me now? What will he say to me? What I want us to see this morning, though, is the shocking answer to that question, that amid our failures, Jesus meets us with the gift of his faithfulness. And I want to see how he does it by, in two ways. He lets his faithfulness provide the answers really to two of our most fundamental identity questions. And the first one is this. It's the question, who are you? Who are you? You see, in meeting us in our failure with his faithfulness, Jesus reminds us who we are. And I want you to see how he does this. In verse 9, we see Jesus has set the scene with a charcoal fire in place. And while we might gloss over those words, Peter was likely startled by the scene. I mean, the last time he was standing around a charcoal fire, the only time that phrase is mentioned in John's gospel other than this is chapter 18, the scene of Peter's greatest failure where he denies Jesus. And in this way, Jesus is really recreating that scene. And he's meeting Peter in the depths of his failure, not to rub his face in it, but ultimately to remind him who he truly is. And in the interaction, we see him stressing really two things about our identity. And the first is this. We are utterly dependent on Jesus. Utterly dependent on Jesus. It's demonstrated at the outset of the passage in the fact that they can catch no fish without the help of Jesus. But even more, we see it in the interaction in verses 15 to 17. There is a lot going on in this interaction. Jesus asked Peter three times, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And in light of Peter's self-reliant claim of absolute loyalty to Jesus earlier, Jesus is stripping Peter of his self-reliance and inviting him back into the true posture of utter dependence on him. And Peter is grieved by this, but he also gets it. That's why in verse 17, he finally just says, Lord, you are the one who knows everything. You know everything. You don't even have to ask me. And his response is not another self-reliant vow of loyalty, but an affirmation that he cannot follow Jesus in his own strength. He is utterly dependent on him. And friends, we need a reminder like this every day. We can spend so much of our lives trying to convince other people, trying to convince ourselves that we've got it together, that we're self-sufficient and unbreakable. And as Christians, we can even begin to live and talk as if the goal of the Christian life is to no longer need Jesus, to no longer be desperate for his grace. 
And friends, the goal of the Christian life is never independence. It is ever-deepening dependence on Christ. That is where your security is found, not in your accomplishments, your resume, your intellect, your looks, your reputation, or even your good deeds. It is on the solid rock of Christ Jesus. That is who you are. But we also see uh, not just that we're made to be dependent on Jesus, but also that we are desired by Jesus. You know, we see this in Jesus intentionally and intimately moving toward Peter despite his failure. But again, it's amplified in verses 15 to 17 in that same question, do you love me? Now, there are a few things going on here. At one level, Jesus is mercifully convicting, healing, and restoring Peter after his threefold denial and actually reinstating him as a shepherd over his flock. Yes, he's also stressing at a most fundamental level that we as human beings are fundamentally lovers. That's why he doesn't ask, what do you think of me? What will you do for me? But do you love me? Because Jesus wants your heart. But there's something even deeper being communicated here in asking the question, do you love me? He's reminding Peter that one of the truest things about him, even in his failure, is that he is desired by God. I want you to see how this is inferred in this question. You know, I know uh, all of us go through the week. We go to grocery stores. We go to restaurants. We go to coffee shops. If you're like me doing university ministry, you go to coffee shops all the time. Whatever it may be for you, we interact with a lot of the same people. We may even begin to get to know them over time. But I would venture to guess that you've never stopped and asked your barista or your waiter or waitress, do you love me more than these? Do you love me? No, you haven't asked that. One, because that would be very weird, and that would probably freak them out. It's good that you don't ask that. But one reason you don't ask it is because you only ask that question to someone that you really love. You see, if your barista tells you they don't love you, you're not going to lose any sleep over it. But if someone that you deeply love, a parent, a child, a sibling, a friend, says to you, you know, I'll respect you, but I I don't love you. I'm not going to love you. I mean, that would tear you up. Why? Because you love them. You love them. And why is Jesus asking Peter, do you love me? It's because he loves him. The same reason he asks you, do you love me? Because he loves you. He's inviting you to life with him. That is his posture toward you. He desires you. See, Jesus meets us in our failure and he reminds us who we are, dependent on him and desired by him. Not only does he invite us to remember who we are, he also invites us to rest in whose we are, to rest in whose we are. That is to say, in meeting us in our failure with his faithfulness, he reminds us that we belong to him. We are his. And in doing so, he invites us really to rest in two things that are true about him that give us confidence. And the first is this. His promises are certain. His promises are certain. In this interaction between Peter and Jesus, uh, we see this really beautiful work of restoration taking place. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. And then you get to verse 18. And Jesus makes this very weird death prediction of Peter. It's like the ultimate conversation stopper. You're reading it, and you're like, what just happened? This was real beautiful, and all of a sudden, you're going to die, Peter. Seems really morbid to us at first glance. But we don't need to miss the encouragement that's actually wrapped up in this statement. Do you notice Jesus' words? Truly, truly, I say to you. 
When was the last time Jesus addressed Peter in that way? John 13, 38. When Jesus promised Peter that he would deny him three times. So when Jesus utters these words in verse 18, Peter would actually hear a promise. A promise that as Peter follows Jesus, though failure and hardship will come, Peter will be faithful to the end. You are not a failure. You belong to me, and I will keep you. You will be faithful to me, Peter. You can rest in that. Truly, truly, I say to you, my promises are certain, and you're mine. His promises are certain. Not only are his promises certain, though, we also see that his purposes are good. His purposes are good. You know, perhaps more than any other disciple, Peter struggled to understand Jesus' purposes. That's why he's one of the more endearing characters in all of the Gospels. We see it most clearly in Mark 8 and Matthew 16. Jesus and the disciples are talking, and Jesus says, Who do you say that I am, Peter? He says, You're the Christ. And Jesus says, Blessed are you, Peter. God the Father has revealed this to you. It's this glorious moment, and Peter's basking in it. And then Jesus starts talking about his upcoming suffering, that he's going to die. And Peter says, No, 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 that's, that's not the way it should be. And he says, Get behind me, Satan. Strongest rebuke in the Bible. And what's going on there in that moment is Peter is struggling to understand the nature of God's purposes. And I think it's a struggle for all of us. You see, God's purposes include suffering. Sometimes even failure, but they conclude in glory. His purposes include suffering, but they conclude in glory. As Jesus is speaking to Peter, think about this. In this text, he stands in resurrection form as a physical embodiment of the goodness of his purposes for his people and for this world. That suffering, struggle, failure, even death in the economy of God will not and cannot have the last word. They're not even meaningless, but they're a part of the path toward resurrection, life, and glory. You see, like Peter, we so often want to define the terms of God's purposes. We want to tell God what success should look like. And Jesus is revealing to Peter and to us that his purposes... And his definitions are better than ours. What looked like a monumental failure on the part of God, the suffering and death of Christ, was the path toward total victory, resurrection life, and the healing of the world. You can rest in whose you are because his purposes are good. See, as those united to Jesus, our identity is so wrapped up in his that his faithfulness defines both who we are and whose we are. So I want to take a minute to think about what does that mean for us. And I have kind of two points of application and then some questions for us to think about. But the first is this. We need to continue to learn to become who we are. Become who we are. You see, if you're united to Jesus, then Christ, his righteousness, his faithfulness, is the truest thing about who you are. Part of what it means to let Jesus define you in that way is to embrace the teaching that apart from him, you can do nothing. Apart from him, you can do nothing. Abide in him. And to understand that the heart of every spiritual discipline, the part of every spiritual practice in the Christian life, reading your Bible, praying, confessing your sins, coming to worship together as the people of God, is toward the end of actually communing with God and experiencing his life that is yours by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That is yours now. That's why the point of almost every New Testament letter is to be who you are. 
now that you are in Jesus Christ. Be who you are. He has given you all things. Every spiritual gift is yours in Jesus Christ. And if that's true of us, we should have the freedom to be honest and humble. People who are not afraid of acknowledging our failures to one another. Vulnerability in our failures is actually the path toward becoming who you actually are in Jesus Christ. We have to learn to do that together, to become who we are. And second, we also need to learn to rest in whose we are. You see, to belong to Jesus in this way, again, means his faithfulness and not your failure has the last word on who you are. That's the lens through which God sees you. And not even your failures can thwart that. And our security lies not in ourselves, but in this relationship that we have been adopted into, the same security shared between Father and Son through the Spirit is ours. We have been adopted into the family of God. Alleluia. And if that is true of you, our moments of failure can even be transformed into moments where we realize where our security truly lies. In a God whose promises are certain and whose purposes are good and whose promises have been applied to you by the Spirit. The last thing I want to pose, though, is more of a diagnostic question. And the question is this, how do you respond to failure? How would your friends say you respond to failure? That's probably a better question. And what does that reveal about you? See, so often in the midst of our failures, we also say things to ourselves that we would never say to other people. I say this all the time under my breath. The things I say under my breath, the things I mutter to myself or say in my mind when I fail, I would never say to another person because I'm super critical on myself. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says uh, that a lot of our problems as Christians come from the fact that we don't know how to talk to ourselves. And I've shared uh, with a lot of my friends in, in Charlottesville where I live that one of the practices that I participate in with a lot of the staff at our church is to regularly confess our sins to one another. And it's actually been life-changing for me to do that regularly over the past few years. Because what I've come to see is this crazy irony that sometimes we can actually find it easier to confess our sins to God, who is holy, than we do to confess our sins to another human being who is flawed just as we are. And a lot of it is because we, we don't want to be seen in that light. We don't want to be known in that way. We're scared to actually name these things out loud. And I've come to see it is actually so life-giving to find brothers and sisters who can keep you accountable in that way where you can actually name the things in your life where you are pushing against, rebelling against, and running from God, it humbles you. It helps you appropriately feel the weight of your sin. And at the same time, that person can remind you and speak the gospel over you in a way that is absolutely beautiful. I remember an instance, even this past fall, that's so ingrained in my mind because of how important and real it was to me in that moment. I was having a really bad week, and I was just naming all of these things out loud that were going on within me. And, you know, the more you do that, you think, oh, my goodness, I am absolutely awful. And I remember he, he said, do you believe that God loves you? And I said, yeah, I know I'm supposed to believe that. I don't really feel like that right now. Um, and he said, well, what, what have you said to yourself this week as you've processed through these things? And I said, well, I, I have told, called myself a lot of things this week. Uh, probably the most PG one is that I feel like an idiot. And he just interrupted me and he said, son, No. He said, dear one, you are beloved. 
You're a child of God. You are not an idiot. You are not whatever else you've called yourself. Christ loves you. You are his, and he desires you. And friends, that is the way that we're to speak to one another as Christians. We're to actually help one another rightly understand our true identity given to us in and through Jesus Christ. To, to rid ourselves of the lies that we're told by the deceiver himself that seek to name us falsely and actually say, no, you're a son or daughter of the king. Yes, you've repented of your sin now. It is washed away and dealt with in Christ. You're a son or daughter of the king. That's who you are. You see, Peter is one of these interesting characters uh, that one of my favorite professors in seminary uh, studied several has spent several decades of his life studying. He refers to Peter's life as the downward spiral of Christian growth. I think it's so appropriate. I mean, you follow Peter through the rest of the New Testament, and you see that this encounter did not mean that he never failed again. He fails multiple times. But it did lead him into this lifelong journey of following Jesus, taking great risks, being faithful, experiencing failure, but ultimately staying faithful to the end. And that is the invitation from God to each one of us. And I want to close with this. I've thought about different metaphors or analogies that have helped me understand this unique relationship we have as we follow Jesus, as he forgives us again and again and restores us back to union with him, to communion with him. And one of the best images that's come to my mind is that of a child learning to walk. Uh, we have two young kids. One is five and one's about to be two. So they're kind of past that stage. We have a lot of friends that still have these little, little babies that are just taking their first steps. When you have friends that age or connected people that age, you know, your Facebook and your Instagram are always just popping with videos of kids taking two or three steps. I know you've seen all these things. What it usually looks like is you have this kid that's kind of propped up and they're wobbling a little bit. They take one or two steps and bam, they fall on their face. And what you never see in any of those videos is a parent say, oh my goodness, you kidding me? Two steps? That is ridiculous. You can't even walk. No. What do they do? They say, yes. Did you see that? Two steps. And they run and they pick them up. And they get them back steady again and they say, keep coming. Keep coming to me. Friends, that is God's posture toward you as his child. Every step you take, he celebrates your faithfulness. And even when you fall, he moves toward you with his forgiveness and his grace. And as we repent, picks us back up and says, keep coming. Keep coming where life is found, in and with me. That is the invitation to you. Christ is the restorer who draws you back again and again to the fellowship that you're made for, for life with Christ. Hallelujah. Yes, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much. We thank you so much for the gift of your faithfulness extended to us in and through Jesus Christ, Lord. That even in our failures, you meet us and you wash us in the blood of the Lamb. And you cleanse us and make us white as snow. Lord, we pray that as people, as Christians, you would help us learn what it looks like to be honest about our failures, to learn how to repent that we might regularly move closer and closer and more intimately into life with you, Lord. Thank you so much for the forgiveness offered in and through Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.